Well, <clears throat> if you have your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and turn over to Psalm 23. Uh, we're going to actually, we're going to finish up our Psalm 23 series today. So originally when we planned it out, we, we planned to go verse by verse, which we've done so far. Um, and then when we were looking at the preaching schedule and some things coming up, we decided um, to go ahead and actually combine verses five and six today and finish up the series. And it's, it's, it's definitely a God thing in that because as I was preparing the sermon, um, those two verses just so naturally just fit together today in, in, in what God laid on my heart to, to share with you. So um, that, was, that was just an, uh, a real true God thing in that. But um, throughout the psalm series, we've been, we've been looking at this psalm, and we've talked about how, <clears throat> excuse me, we've talked about how this is a familiar psalm, how it's a psalm that, that we know well, it's a, a, a piece of scripture that we oftentimes um, see in, in, in our Christian culture, right, from coffee mugs to t-shirts to, to pieces of artwork that hang in our houses to all sorts of types of things where we see Psalm 23 utilized. We, we talked last time about Psalm 23 verse 4 and how that's a popular verse that's utilized at, at funerals, and so that's a familiar, a familiar passage to us, much like 1 Corinthians 13 is at weddings. We talked about how even Psalm 23 has been appropriated in popular culture, right? It's, it's been used in movies and, and popular, you know, secular songs, rap songs, and all types of different places where Psalm 23 has been utilized. So it's a, it's a well-worn passage. It's a familiar passage. It's a, a place where we oftentimes run to to find comfort because it's just, it just feels like home, doesn't it? Right? It's just so, so comfortable. It's such a familiar place. But hopefully... Um, what you've seen as we've dug through this psalm is that there's a lot more underneath the surface there. Like, yes, all of those things are true, but there's also a lot more um, underneath the surface. And so today, in particular, um, I think we'll really see some of that as we peel back some of the layers. We'll see some of the, the deeper truths in this psalm. These passages actually, as familiar as Psalm 23 is, and as, as much as we've we're familiar with it and have read it and know it. These passages in particular, at least for me, have always just kind of, they just had this feeling to them, right? Like there was just something different about them. Like when you come to them, just the terminology and the language that David uses, it, it's just kind of, it, it kind of just creates this, this feeling in us. Maybe some questions, maybe some, some feelings like it's just, it's a little, it's a little weird or jarring. Um, and I think that's, that's actually intentional. I think that there's, there's, that God is using uh, those things to draw our attention to him. There's actually a lot of that in the psalm that we'll, we'll dig into today. I'm going to go ahead and read it for us in our entirety, and then we'll dig in uh, specifically to verses 5 and 6. So Psalm 23, a psalm of David, says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. <clears throat> Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So if you recall a few weeks ago when we were in verse 4, we talked about how 
uh, verse 4 marks a, a transition in the psalm, right? So, so David goes from, from this, um, this, this uh, shepherding metaphor or analogy to a different analogy, right? He switches locations here, and now we see um, God not as a shepherd, but rather as a gracious host. So there's a, a transition that happens there. We also see transitions in the pronouns, right? So, that, so David goes from talking about God in the third person to talking to God specifically. So we see some switches, some things that change in, in verse 4 and, and then continue to change here in verses 5 and 6. You see, David is, is changing up the location here from, from the pasture and the field to the banquet hall. And, and one thing that we can, we can oftentimes miss, I think, when we read Psalm 23 and we read these verses is that God isn't just preparing a meal for David, right? It's not just like a, an evening dinner that he's preparing for him. Rather, this is a, a celebration feast. This is an, an important, a, a big dinner. This, this is a big deal. This is not just some ordinary meal that's being prepared. You can see this in the language, right? Listen to the language that he uses. He says, you anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. He's talking about an abundance here. He's, uh, anointing oils would have been used to, to prepare people, to, to, to bless guests and prepare guests as they came in to a celebration feast, something like a wedding or, or something like that. Anointing oils would have been used. Keep in mind that, you know, in, in ancient times, they didn't have running water, right? So, so people probably stank. I mean, if we're just being honest about it, like they were probably a little bit smelly. So you use the anointing oils, right, to just make everything clean and fresh. This was a, a celebration feast. This is a type of celebration that we see um, elsewhere in Scripture. When I was reading Psalm 23 and reflecting on Psalm 23 this week in preparation of this sermon, I couldn't help but be drawn to a, another feast that we see described, another familiar passage to us, right? The, the, the parable of the prodigal son that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15. You probably know that passage as well because it's a familiar passage to us, but if you're not familiar with it, the parable, Jesus tells this parable of a, of a, a rich man who has two sons. And, and one son is, is like the reliable, hardworking, trustworthy son. That, that This is the older son. This is the one that, that, you know, just does what needs to be done. He's reliable. He's trustworthy. And then there's this other son, the younger son, and he's a free spirit, right? So he, he just wants to, he doesn't really want what, he doesn't want this life on the farm, right? He doesn't, he wants something bigger and different. So he comes to his father and he says, hey dad, look, you know, I know that one day when you're gone, I'll have an inheritance, but that's not really going to do me a lot of good then. I'd really like to have it now. Like I want to go out, I want to experience life. So he asks his father for his inheritance, and he takes the father gives him the inheritance, and the son takes it, and he goes off to live in the world. He goes off to the big city, right, to experience life, and, and very quickly he, he burns through his money. He's living kind of some, in some debauchery and things like that, and so he very quickly burns through that money, and he finds himself at a place where he is in the pit, right? Deep in the, literally in the pit. He is, he's eating from the trough. He's eating pig slop from the trough. And he's just like, man, this is, this is like the, the lowest of low. He hits rock bottom and he thinks, you know, what am I doing? Even my father's servants, the, the people, that, the, the hired workers on the farm, they live better than this. So he, he decides to go back to his father and, and to ask for his father's forgiveness. And that's where we'll pick it up here in, in verses 20 through 25. It says, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, 
His father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But this is the part that I want us to hear. It says, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near the house, he heard music and dancing. This is the kind of feast that I I want us to see today. This is the kind of feast that David is describing in Psalm 23. This, This massive celebration. The celebratory feast. This is that God has laid out before him. This is God saying, like, roll out the red carpet, right? Set the, the tables with the finest linens. Bring out the, the fine china and, and the, good, the good glasses and the, the best silverware, right? Kill the fattened calf, bake the bread, pour the best wine. This is a, a celebration. This is the t- type of feast that we see here. But notice the setting of the feast, this is one of those things, right? Like, like that part is, is, is good, it makes sense, but then we come to the setting, and the setting's just, it's jarring. It feels, it feels kind of off to us, doesn't it? Notice the setting. The Lord hosts this feast for David in the presence of his enemies. This strikes us as weird, because when we think about enemies, right, think about, about enemies, and, and perhaps some famous enemies come to mind, right, from, from popular culture and history, right, like think of like cowboys and Indians, right, or, or maybe you think of like, like wars. In the World War II, you had the Axis powers and you had the Allied powers, and they were at war with one another. Think of, of some things from our popular culture, right, like, like Batman and the Joker, or Superman and Lex Luthor, right, Harry Potter and Lord Voldemort, Captain Hook and Peter Pan, right, when we think about enemies, these things come to mind. Maybe we think about, about sports, right? Like the Yankees and the Red Sox or these popular rivalries, right? right? Michigan and Ohio State, WVU and Pitt, right? Shout out to our local f- sports fans. But they have real disdain for one another, right? I mean, I, I, a couple years ago, I had the opportunity. I'm, I went to Penn State. I'm a Penn State fan. Um, and so a couple years ago, I had the opportunity to go to, did this one just boo? Did, <laughs> I, I will, whoever that was, I will find you, I will fight you. <laughs> um, but a couple years ago, I had the opportunity to go to the Penn State, Ohio State game in Columbus. I've never been to the shoe. It was a really cool experience. But during the halftime show, this is, keep in mind, this is Penn State versus Ohio State that's playing, right? During the halftime show, in the midst of the halftime show, they're like taking shots at, at Michigan. I'm like, Michigan's not even playing. They're just, it's just like those rivalries, those, those things, are, they're so deeply ingrained, right? There's just this hatred that exists. And so it feels odd to us to think of like someone eating in the presence of their enemies, right? That's, there'd never be a scene in, in one of these, these popular stories that we know where Batman and Joker would, you know, Batman would sit down for a meal while Joker's lurking around, right? That's just not going to happen. It feels weird to us. It's so weird that when something like this happens, like it's written down in the annals of history. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with, with history or World War I history, but during World War I in, in 19, let me check, 1914, 
there was a, a Christmas truce. So what happened was you, you've got the, the Germans in one trench and, and 20 feet away, you've got the, the British in another trench and it's Christmas Eve and, and all of a sudden you, you hear this noise coming from the, the German trench and they're singing Christmas carols, right? And then the British forces start singing Christmas carols and then somebody comes out of the trench with kind of like a, like cautiously with a white flag, like, hey. And what ends up happening was this really miraculous and interesting thing where they end up gathering together in this area called no man's land between the two trenches, and they, they spent time together, they, they drank wine together, they played soccer with one another. I mean, you can look this up, it, it, it's, it's, there's pictures and, and things from this, but, but it was such an odd thing, right? But for 24 hours, they just came together to celebrate Christmas together, and then the next day, they went back to shooting and killing one another. But it was so, such a weird thing that, like, it's documented in our history books because it's just, this is not what we would expect. This is not how we act in the presence of our enemies. Imagine the context of the parable of the prodigal son, right? If, if the son's coming back and as he approaches his father's farm, he sees that, that there's, you know, he's being attacked, right? There's, there's marauders attacking the farm. And he runs up to the father, and of course, the father's going to be happy to see him but he's not going to stop everything and say, hey, let's have a feast. He's going to say, hey, go grab a weapon and help me defend our farm, right? That's how we act in the presence of our enemies. It wouldn't make sense to make oneself vulnerable in the presence of our enemies by putting down your guard and feasting in their presence. There's some disagreement among scholars about what David is actually trying to illustrate here. Some say that this is a victory feast, so... so David's enemies have been conquered, they've been defeated, and David is feasting in their presence as in like they're captives, they're, they're just there, they, they can't do anything about it, they're just forced to watch as David feasts in the presence of their enemies. So David's praising God for his protection and, and blessing and allowing him to overcome his enemies. That's one way that scholars have, have looked at this and interpreted this verse. Others say that, that David's pointing to God's sovereign protection over him, right? Kind of like we talked about in, in verse 4, that this is a continuation of what he's talking about in verse 4, where he's talking about God's protection over him in the, in the midst of danger, that he is so confident in God's protection and sovereignty over the situation that he's able to relax and rest and feast in the presence of his enemies, despite that threat that exists. Surely David, as a, a shepherd and a soldier, would have been well a, a, accustomed to being and just doing these normal life things in dangerous situations, right? Eating and sleeping and resting and doing these things in the midst of possibly dangerous situations. So that's another way to look at it. The, but the more time I spent studying this, these different positions and trying to look for like one that was more compelling or, or some reason to want to emphasize one over the other, the, the, the conclusion I really came to is, is the more I thought about it is, does it really matter? I think both of these things are true here. Whether God safeguards us from our enemies or even allows us to see them conquered or he just grants us the peace to rest in the midst of dangerous situations, uh, I think that, that, that the lesson is not any different for us, really, is it? Is there really a difference in it? I think in both circumstances, we see that God is in control in both circumstances, we see the realities that we've been studying throughout this psalm play out. That's what we've been, it's been, David's been emphasizing for us to trust God, to rely on God, to find peace in God. 
It's just just all over this psalm. But I think there is something more that we're meant to see here. I think there is something more that we're able to see with the benefit of hindsight. I think we can see fully the picture that David was painting by faith through the power of the Holy Spirit about a thousand years before it was actually realized in Jesus. I think we, when we peel the layers back, we can see some more. You can't help but see the person and work of Jesus woven into the tapestry of Psalm 23. I mean, as I study through this psalm, it's just constantly reminding me of things that I know and have studied and learned about from the life of Jesus Christ. I don't think that this is eisegesis, and eisegesis is, what that means is that we read meaning back into the text. We want to avoid that when we're teaching and preaching God's word. We want to do what's called exegesis, which is pulling meaning out of the text and teaching that. So I don't think that I'm guilty of eisegesis here. I hope that I'm not because I just see Jesus all over this psalm. Of course, we see that Jesus is the good shepherd, right? We see this time and time again. Jesus regularly used shepherd language to talk about himself and to teach about himself. That's not a stretch for us to imagine. In John 10, 11, he says explicitly, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. So we're, we're all over that one, right? We we know Jesus is the good shepherd. That's not a stretch. We're not, we're not stretching anything. Jesus makes this correlation himself. But who is it that would ultimately sit down at the table for a meal in the presence of his enemies? Who is it that would ultimately do that? Well, it's, it's, right? it's the son of David, isn't it? It's Jesus that ultimately sits down at the table in the presence of his enemies. We studied this just a few weeks ago in, in, in the Gospel of Mark. Cody taught us about that Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he, he prepared a meal, right? He sat down to a meal. And in the, the crowd, of, uh, in, the, in the group that was there at the meal with his disciples and followers was his betrayer, right? Judas was there. He was present at this meal. Jesus quite literally sat down at a table and shared a meal in the presence of his enemies. How can we read Psalm 23, 5 and not be drawn to this idea, to the, to the picture of, of Jesus at the Last Supper? How can we not make that correlation? It, it just seems so natural to me. But here's the truly amazing thing about the picture we ultimately see in Jesus in Psalm 23, 5. He's not just the guest at the meal. He also is the meal. See, Jesus prepares the table. Jesus is the one who, he's the, he's the, the host. He prepares the meal. He, he washes his guests' feet, but he also is the meal. Jesus, the gracious host, humbles himself to serve his guests, but he humbles himself in other ways as well, ways that, that are are. We, we celebrate each and every week, right? We read this verse or this passage every week here at The Journey from 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 25. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, What? He said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper and saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus isn't just the host of the meal, but Jesus is the meal. Jesus prepares a table not just in the presence of his enemies, but for his enemies. 
It's important to think that like Judas isn't the only one who is positionally Christ's enemy. Everyone in attendance at that meal as a, as a human, fallen, broken, sinful human being who has committed treason against the holy God stands as an enemy against him. No one there, despite their, their best efforts, has managed to, to change themselves positionally before God. Romans 5, 8 says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So it's not like, like they cleaned themselves up and so they earned a, a place at the table, right? No, they were Christ's enemies, positionally. Every week, when Jesus Christ invites us to his table to partake in communion, we're taking hold of the promise which he gave to us as an unbreakable covenant. Jesus says, this is the new covenant in my blood. It's a, it's a promise that we can lay hold of and, and rest in. And this brings us to, to verse 6. Let me read it for us again. It says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So just like we do each and every week at the end of our service by celebrating and partaking communion, David ends Psalm 23, 6 by laying hold of a promise. But the interesting thing here about this promise, the interesting thing that, that stuck out to me, again, these are the things that, that stick out as I studied this, that seem off or odd or different, uh, that Jesus or I'm sorry, David lays claim to this promise, right? Like we don't see God speaking this promise even though David, David is talking to God. We don't see God uh, return, you know, this promise to him. We don't see it spoken by God. Rather, David speaks this promise. He lays claim to it. Is David trying to like do some kind of like name it and claim it type thing here? I don't, I don't think that's what's going on. You see, sometimes in scripture, God's promises are explicit. We know this, right? Sometimes we see explicitly in scripture, God speaking promises to us. Some examples, Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. God is speaking this promise here. Isaiah 54, 10, for the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but, the steadfast, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Again, God is speaking this promise. Genesis 17, 7 through 8, and I will establish my covenant between me and you for your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Right, so there's, and this is just a couple of examples, but time and time again in the scriptures, we actually see God speaking blessings to his people, making promises through his very, his very word. But oftentimes also, and perhaps maybe even more often as we study through the scriptures, lots of times we see God's promises are implicit in the writing, right, of, of the, the human authors who are writing through the spirit, inspired by the spirit. They're implicit in the scriptures, this is common in the scriptures, but it's, it's especially interesting to me here to see this because David's using covenantal language. And typically when God's making covenantal promises, it's God himself who is speaking. But David's using covenantal language here. He's, he's laying hold, he talks about, about 
about resting in God's goodness and mercy forever, right? There's, there's, there's some covenantal things that are going on here. And so this is unique that David is speaking covenantal language and laying hold of these promises to God. In ancient times, covenants were often ratified with the feast as the two parties would come together and share a meal with one another. We see Christ institute his new, institute his new covenant over a meal with a meal that, they're, that's re, that we recreate each and every week in the sacrament of communion. But I want to draw our attention to one word here in verse 6, the word mercy that we see in the ESV. If, if you take note of your Bible, if yours is like mine, then there's probably a footnote there on the word mercy and at the bottom of the page it'll 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 say maybe or steadfast love this is the hebrew word hesed and hesed is an interesting word because it doesn't really have a, a, a direct english or even a greek translation it's it's a it's a unique hebrew word it's it's kind of similar to another important word that we know from the New Testament, the word agape that we've talked about before, right? Agape is one of the many Greek words for love, but agape is a special type of love. And, and I mean, we in English we just say love, right? And I've talked about this before, right? I can love my kids and I can love pizza, right? And it's the same, it's the same word. And clearly I'm conveying two different emotions, two different feelings there. And and hesed is a similar type of word. We don't have a real direct translation for it. It comes from the root word, which means to bow one's head towards another. And it's an important word in Hebrew because it's most often used to speak of God or used to speak by God in relation to his faithfulness in keeping his promises. It's a covenantal word, right? God is faithful to keep his promises. This hesed, this steadfast love, this mercy, this is, this is God's faithfulness in keeping his promises to his people. In other words, Bible scholars often point to it as a rich covenantal word. So in Psalm 23, 6, David isn't just laying hold to one particular promise from God. Rather, I believe he's laying hold by faith to all of God's promises. Promises that are ultimately fulfilled by Jesus when he recreates the feast that David is writing about here in verse 5 and establishes his new covenant that he ultimately fulfills with his body and his blood. For all of the blessing and honor that God bestows upon him, we know that David was not a spiritual superman. Make no mistake, David was a man, a descendant of Adam, just like you and I, he was a sinner. And we have the, the opportunity, and David has the misfortune, of having some of his greatest mistakes recorded for posterity within the pages of Scripture. I don't think any of us would sign up for that, right? Like who wants to have their greatest mistakes written down for, you know, for people to, to read and remember for thousands and thousands of years, right? So how can this man confidently proclaim that God's goodness and mercy will follow him all the days of his life and that he will dwell in the house of the Lord forever? How can this sinful, broken, fallen man make such claims? What, what grounds does he have to lay hold of this promise? What grounds does he have to make such an audacious claim? How can he confidently, confidently take hold of, of those promises, and how can we do the same? Well, the answer is Jesus, right? And that's, I mean, of course, that sounds easy, right? Like, we always joke with kids, like in Sunday school, if you don't know the answer, just raise your hand and say, Jesus, you'll probably be right, right? But the answer really is Jesus in this 
It's the gospel of Christ, the good news of, of Christ's atoning death that offers us this hope. It's the person and work of Jesus and he alone that reconciles us to God, that puts us in right relationship with God, that allows us to, to dwell richly in his presence. This, this relationship that once was fractured and broken by sin has been restored and made right through Jesus. You see, Jesus drank the overflowing and bitter cup of God's wrath so that we could drink from the overflowing cup of his goodness, mercy, and steadfast love towards us each and every day of our lives. That's what we receive from Jesus. And if that's not enough, this promise extends not just to this life, but to the life that is to come where we get to dwell in his presence forever. And that word forever there, there's also a footnote on that one, it says to the fullness of days or to the, to the end of days. Again, this is covenantal language, right? This is like how long is forever, like forever, never ending. John 14, one through three says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. See, Jesus is promising us that he will bring us into his presence, that he, the good shepherd, will shepherd his flock into his presence where we can dwell forever. So this brings us to the end of Psalm 23. Six simple verses that, that we that we've know so well, that we've read so often, that are so familiar to us, that have been appropriated in so many ways, right? That we, that we so often just kind of glance by. I mean, yet there's such, such rich theology in here. There's such, so many rich promises. There's such a, a, this is such a deep and, and so many deep and rich assurances for us in our lives. How often have we failed to appreciate those things? I know I have. I know I've been quick to, to read through scriptures and, and glance past them and be willing to just take them at face value. See, Psalm 23 is full of so much beautiful and hope-filled imagery and yet so many jarring contrasts when we look at it. When we really look at it, there's so many jarring contrasts in it. In the beginning, right, we see that the Lord Yahweh is my shepherd, and yes, we like that. But the role of shepherd was not one of honor. Like a shepherd wasn't someone who was esteemed in culture. He was, he was a lowly person. He, he would have been on the fringes of society. Or in the family, he would have been the youngest son, right? David, when, when um, Samuel comes to David's family, right, and he goes to, goes to Jesse and he asks to see his sons, right, he goes through the whole line of, of Jesse's sons, and he's like, this isn't the one that, that God has, has called me here. Like, do you have another son? And they're like, oh, yeah, well, David, the young one, like he's out in the field with the sheep, right? Like he was an afterthought in the family. This is who the shepherd was. This is not a job worthy for a king. And yet Jesus, God, eternal, eternal creator and sovereign king of the entire universe says, I am the good shepherd. And if he is the shepherd, then we are the sheep. And remember what we learned about the sheep, right? Like sheep are, are lowly, helpless creatures. This is another contrast that we see in Psalm 23. They're dumb, utterly helpless. 
no means to defend themselves. They'll, they'll eat themselves right off into, a, into trouble, get stuck in thorns or in a ditch, just eating their way right off into trouble. Completely, completely helpless. Even their hair will grow so much that they can't move around, if not for someone to come and, and trim it for them. This is who we are. Is that how we tend to think about ourselves, though? All right, this is jarring. Again, a jarring contrast. In our pride and self-worship, we strive to be the autonomous man, right? Completely self-sufficient, with no need or dependence on anyone or anything. And if we're honest with ourselves, right, we don't, we don't worship God as king. Rather, we establish ourselves as king over our own, or kings or queens over our own small little kingdom. But the good shepherd loves us and cares for us and protects us and provides for us, not because we're great, but because he is great for his glory and his name's sake. We see that in verse 3, right? Another jarring contrast. We like to make it seem about us, like, right? Like the good shepherd wants to do all these things for me because I'm so great. But no, Psalm 23 teaches us that he does these things because he is great and for his glory. Just these, these jarring contrasts when we stand back and we look at it. It's what makes Psalm 23 so amazing. But this good shepherd in the process of leading us to green pastures and still waters, he takes us in and through the psalm of Eth, the deep darkness. Why would a good shepherd take his sheep into the place of danger and uncertainty? Again, right? Contrast. Meant to grab our attention. Why would the shepherd not just take them around the danger? Rather, he takes them through the danger. And in this place, it's not just his tender affections that come for us, but rather it's his rod and his staff. These are tools of direction and correction not commonly associated with comfort. As one pastor put it, this is like a child saying to their parent, your spanking spoon comforts me. It's jarring. It's jarring contrasts. And then we come to today's passage. The banquet feast in the presence of our enemies this isn't what we do in the presence of our enemies. We don't sit down for a feast. Rather, we, we gird up our loins, right? We prepare for war. We strengthen our defenses. We grab and equip ourselves. We grab our weapons and equip ourselves for battle. See, I may fight against my enemies or I may flee from my enemies, but the one thing I don't do is set down my, lay down my guard and recline at table in the presence of my enemies, right? I won't do what Cody did where I'll lay down on the stage. <laughs> but, but, but I mean, think about it, right? In reality, right? Like that's not a position you want to be in when your enemies come knocking, right? And yet the Lord says, come, recline at my table, rest at my table, enjoy this feast with our enemies all around us. This makes no sense. It's jarring. It's dangerous. It, it, it just, uh, it offends our senses and our sensibilities. Yet this is the invitation extended to us here today. In the midst of a world that, that does not acknowledge Jesus as Lord and does not know him as Savior, we are invited each and every Sunday, we are invited to come to his table, to recline at his table and be nourished with the bread of his body and be washed clean with the, the, the wine or, the, or hit the juice, his blood. This is jarring, isn't it? 
Over the last few weeks, we've, as we've walked through the last days and hours of Jesus' life and ministry, we've had to come face to face with the violence and ugliness of the cross. It's where the gospel ultimately takes us. And this is a mirror into our own hearts, isn't it? When we look at the ugliness of the cross, isn't it a mirror into our own hearts? And the, the salmaveth, the deep darkness of our hearts and minds, the ugly places we try to hide away and keep out of view or cover up, like, like Adam and Eve in the garden, trying to cover up all their sin and their shame with the, the fig leaves. But we can't hide it from God. He sees it all. That's the bad news for us this morning. It's our sin, our shame, our guilt to which we are held accountable to God. That's bad news for us. If we understand the holiness of God, if we understand who God is, that's very bad news. The story of Jesus, though, is a different story, right? We're accumulating death, or we're accumulating debt and death. So that was a misspeak, but actually right. So we're accumulating these things with every errant word, with every careless deed, with every sinful thought, but God. Anytime I told the teens a couple weeks ago, or I guess a month ago or so at the teen retreat, I said, well, anytime we come to the term, but God, like we as Christians should like stand up and cheer and celebrate anytime we come to, the, to but God in the scriptures. But God, right? The good news is that Jesus wrote another story for us. The story of Jesus and his gospel that offers us hope and life and salvation. The story of Jesus is the story of a good shepherd who gives everything of himself in the service to his sheep. It's the story of a suffering servant who, though he alone is worthy of praise and honor and worship, made himself as nothing. Lower than nothing. The lowest of the low so that in him we might partake in his glory. But most importantly, the story of Jesus is the story of the risen king who ascended to his throne by being lifted up on the cross to bear the weight of all of our sin and the wrath of God against all unrighteousness, descending into death so that we might rise again with him and so that we too might live with him forever. These are the promises that we're meant to see in Psalm 23. These are the promises that, lay, that David is laying hold of by faith. And I pray that we can lay hold of these promises by faith again today ourselves. This is the table prepared for David, and this is the table that's prepared for us today. So let us come to the table and take hold of the promise. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your promises. We thank you for your blessing. We thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for your gospel that, that is able to reconcile us. We thank you for the fact that we can't outsin your grace, God. That, that unlike David, our biggest mistakes aren't written down for generations and generations to study. But, but like David, our transgressions can be forgiven. We can be made clean. We can lay hold of the promise the same way that David lays hold of the promise in Psalm 23. And the way that we lay hold of that promise is so simple, Lord. You don't ask us to, to fix the problem. You don't ask us to clean ourselves up. You don't ask us to, to be something that we're not able to be. You don't lay 
uh, uh, expectations upon us that we can never reach, but rather you come, you meet us where we're at, you meet us in the psalm of Eth, in the deep darkness, you come to us in the pit, in, in times of despair. Lord, you come to us, you meet us there, and you, by your power, transfer us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, to your kingdom where we can rest in the presence of our enemies, where we can enjoy a feast, where we can rest in your goodness and mercy that follows us each and every day of our lives and into eternity as we get to dwell in your presence. That's the hope of your gospel. That's the hope that we lay claim to today. That's the hope that we remember as we celebrate communion. That's the hope that we trust in. It's the only hope that we have, Lord. And we thank you for providing it for us. We just ask these things in the most beautiful name. Mm -hmm.